Let's open our Bibles now then to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And tonight we'll study chapter 4 verses 25 through 32. But we're going to do it in overview fashion. Because there are a couple things that are within this paragraph. Particularly some teaching about the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And also some teaching quite uh, toward the end about forgiving one another in an interpersonal way that are going to require complete lessons in and of themselves. But tonight I'd like to give, give the flavor of this entire portion of the passage, it's a, this portion of this chapter. It's a very, very, very important portion of the chapter. And if you'll recall last week, Paul used this analogy of taking off an old garment and putting on a new garment. It was, a, it was a very apt analogy, and there's, there were a couple different nuances into how we were to understand that. First of all, that's true positionally. Positionally, we have taken off the old garment and put on the new garment. But positionally, is not quite all that's going on in this passage. In this passage, Paul is also telling us that we ought to experientially take off the old garment and put on the new garment, or take off the old man and put on the new man. The old man, of course, all some people call that the old sin nature, the new man, the new nature that the believer has. So positionally, we're something different as Christians. And the idea is, in this portion of the chapter, that we should walk in holiness. Remember, in that portion of this, of this section of application, we should walk in holiness, and we should be different. People ought to be able to tell that we're Christians, not because we wear the T-shirt or the hat or because we use certain verbiage, but just by our lives. People ought to be able to tell there's something different about us. In fact, our lives, the, the, if we are expressing our lives with an aspect of love, people will be drawn to that, and love is a tremendous apologetic. So we, it's, this is part of what we see happening in this portion of the chapter. We also learned last week that the corruption that belongs to the old man, or this old sin nature, the corruption that belongs to the old nature is a lifelong process as opposed to the teaching of some that as we mature, then the power of the old sin nature diminishes and diminishes and diminishes until finally one day it just kind of extinguishes itself like a puff of smoke and then we therefore no longer sin. That's a popular teaching in some circles today, but it's not a biblical one. Unfortunately, we'll have this old, old nature, this old man, this sinful trend with us till the day that we die. And also, unfortunately, it doesn't get weaker and weaker and weaker. The text tells us, actually, that our old nature is being corrupted. Even as we sit here today, you're listening to a Bible study. Even as you're sitting here today, it's a process of corruption that is the old sin nature. And it's in corruption in, order, in accordance with the lusts of deceit. When we choose to function under the old self, and don't we do that a lot more than we would like to, when we choose to function under the old self, we live in a constant state of frustration because that's not really who we are anymore. That's not who we are. We are a new creature in Christ, and we have a new nature which should allow us to perform good works. It makes me remember back in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. We studied this some, actually it's not months ago, it's years ago now. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that as believers, as those who are in Christ, we have the responsibility to say no to sin. You remember chapter 7, that chapter of conflict? Paul says, even though I know that I have the responsibility, did I say responsibility or ability a minute ago? We have the responsibility to say no to sin. Even though I know I have that responsibility, I still struggle with it, Paul says. 
In fact, some people take, the, take it, I think, wrongly, that Paul is speaking about a time before he was saved because he struggles. No, I, that's, that is an improper teaching. Paul is saved when he writes Romans chapter 7, and I don't believe it's retrospective. He still struggles with sin even though he's saved. So he knows he has a responsibility to say no to sin. But even though he knows he has that responsibility, he still struggles with sin. And then in chapter 8, that great encouraging chapter, remember we said the reason that Paul can, can say no to sin is because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in this life. So it's the indwelling ministry that helps us in an experiential way take off that old garment and put on the new one and live consistently with who we are. If you're living a life right now of great frustration, it could either be because you're under massive testing, and that's poss a possibility, but it could also be because we're, we're making too many decisions that are inconsistent with who we really are in Christ. We are Christians. Let us learn to live like it and act like it. But we also closed last week by saying that putting aside the old self, taking off that old garment, is only one part of the equation. We, we must put on the new self. So there's a negative side and a positive side. The moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, we are something new. Some theologians call, call it a new spiritual species or a new spiritual creation. We have been created in the likeness of God, in holiness, in righteousness, and in truth. Now, some days you may not feel that way. Some days you may just not feel very holy at all. But that's who we are positionally. And the, the, the call to action here, in many places in the Bible, there's a real strong call to action. And this is one of them. Paul is calling us to action to live consistently with who we are in holiness and truth and righteousness. If you find, again, if you find yourself living most of your day in unholiness and unrighteousness and telling lies all the time, then you're going to be totally frustrated because that's not who you are. You wonder how some believers can just seem to get away with, I mean unbelievers, how some unbelievers can just seem to get away with everything and they don't, it doesn't seem to really bother them as much as we would like for it to bother them. Well, that's because that's, that's not who they are. They are acting consistently with who they are, but not the believer. And that's why sometimes we, we look at people who have been walking out of fellowship with God for quite some time, and we see the level of frustration in their lives. You know, sometimes, since some of, the people, some of these people are my friends, I pray, oh, Lord, you know, could you remove the frustration from their life? And if the Lord was to answer me verbally, he'd say, no, I'm not going to remove that frustration. That's, that's exactly what I want them to feel because they're not acting consistently with who they are. It would be, it would be bad for God to let you just have a, a comfort and contentment if you're not acting consistently with who you are and walking out of fellowship with him. So we are born again with a new nature. And this, is, this next phrase is key. You must understand this to understand Ephesians. We're born again with a new nature, but it is not automatic. It is not automatic that we'll function consistently with that nature. If it was automatic, we wouldn't have to be called to that behavior. I wish it was automatic. I wish as soon as we were saved that the old sin nature was slowly extinguished, my new nature finally took over, and there would be a point in time when I don't sin anymore. Well, I've recently discovered there will be a point in time when I don't sin anymore. Yeah. But it's not going to be on this earth. It may, I may come back. Hopefully I'll be coming back in a resurrection body to this earth and I won't be sinning anymore. But perfection awaits heaven. But we, this, is, this is no excuse to sin. It's no excuse for a lackadaisical behavior on the part of the Christian. But it's a reality that we will continue to sin. We'll have to, to recover from that sin but we should be moving forward, even though we have an Olsen nature that is currently being corrupted. Now tonight, 
in verses 25 through 32, we are going to find five exhortations, five exhortations to Christians concerning personal behavior. Each one of these five exhortations will have three parts. First, a negative command. It will have a positive command. And then Paul will give us the reason for the positive command. There will be a negative command, a positive command, and then the reason for the command. Now, in one of these places, it's going to be switched around. But these three things are going to be present in all five of these commands. Again, because there's so much material here in these verses, this is one unit, one section, but there's so much here that I'm going to, to do an overview of these verses. And then in subsequent lessons, we're going to come back and we're going to study particularly some material about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, what it means, what it really means that the Holy Spirit is grieved, under what circumstances is he grieved, and what does that say about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Some people have the idea that the Holy Spirit is some sort of impersonal force. He's not. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a he masculine, but he is a he person. And also what it means, that, what it means by this statement that the Holy Spirit has sealed us to the day of redemption. That's material that demands probably a, a lesson in and of itself. And then at the end of this, we're going to see a, a, an extremely important verse with regard to our spiritual lives. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This idea of one believer forgiving another believer is huge. And it, the lack thereof may very be, well be one of the major stumbling blocks for the spiritual growth of individual believers in this time period. A failure to forgive. And I know all this stuff, well, you don't know what he did to me, you don't know what she said to me, I don't care what he did to you, and I don't care what he said to you, I know what God said to us. And that if we're going to live the kind of lives that we're supposed to live, apart from the frustrations that go along with walking in carnality, we have got to learn to practice forgiveness one to another. Why? Because we have already been forgiven so much more than God ever asked us to forgive someone else. So we're going to spend probably at least one whole uh, Wednesday night on that as well. But in the meantime, we need to consider these five commands, these five exhortations. In verses 25 through 32, these verses read like this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Then in verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. You see how these, this, this pattern is working out? A negative command, a positive command, and then the reason, the reasoning behind it. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The first exhortation is to stop deceiving and to tell the truth. We've seen before, all the way back in verse 14, that deception is something that marks the unbeliever. 
particularly we've seen in this epistle, that deception is something that marks the false teachers of Paul's day. Those who had gone into Ephesus and would say something like, well, Paul's a great guy, but he's really got that whole thing about eternal security messed up, or whatever it may be. He's got the whole thing about how we come to, to salvation messed up. Deception marks false teachers. Deception is also a mark of the old man. That's part of that old garment that we need to take off and set aside. The Christians should, on the other hand, speak the truth, as we've already seen, in love. Now, don't forget the in love part, because sometimes Christians speak the truth, but they do it with such harshness that it comes out in a, in a very unlovely way, in a way that's very difficult for someone else to receive. So we need to speak the truth in love. And he gives the reason. So stop deceiving people. Start telling the truth. And this is why. Because or for we are members of one another. You see, we're not in this alone. We're part of a body. We're part of a corporate body. And truth, for this corporate body to function effectively, truth has to be our, our personal mark. Deception and conspiracy within the body of Christ and within local churches, both these things are very harmful and they're extremely destructive. Deception, lying, conspiracy, these are things that are extremely destructive in a local church. I think that's one of the reasons why some churches that appear to be so healthy on the surface ultimately fail because underneath the surface, there are conspiracies and there are lying and there's slander and things that go on that people don't see until perhaps it's way too late. There's, people attempt to manipulate. People sometimes are intrigued by intrigue. And it almost becomes a sport for people to try to manipulate things to their own ends. And this is, uh, this is not a positive thing. Now, at this point in the discussion, it always comes up. When the, when the passage tells us, Speak the truth, each of you, with his neighbor. When it tells us to lay aside falsehood, a, a, an ethical question always comes up. So let me address it at least in an abbreviated way tonight. And that's the question, is it ever acceptable to be less than truthful? Now on the surface, that you might say, well, well it just says here for me to tell the truth. So it would never be acceptable to be less than truth, truthful. However, I believe the answer to that question is it ever acceptable to be less than truthful is, now listen carefully, a qualified yes. It is, there are times when it is acceptable to be less than truthful. Now, it's a qualified le yes. Let me give the, qualifi the qualifiers. In ethics, by the way, this is called graded absolutism, which means that there are times for the greater good, and that's the key to graded absolutism, for the greater good, a lie must be told. Now, graded absolutism cannot be, should not be confused with moral relativism. Now, this is not a class in formal ethics tonight, but graded absolutism has to do with accomplishing something for the greater good. Let me give you some classic examples, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Corey Ten Boom, for example. You know, the Nazis come in. Did Corey Ten Boom owe the Nazis a truthful answer? Now, I know how some people try to work around this. They say, well, she didn't really lie to them. Yes, she did. She deceived them. And we just need, to, we need to, to face that head on. And you have to face head on. Did Corey Ten Boom sin when she protected the Jews rather than tell the Nazis the truth? Now, in my view, she did not. In my view, she didn't even have to confess that. Now, not everybody agrees with that. 
Not, not even every, everybody that is well-known in theology would, would agree with that. But I would say most do. Most understand that there is a time when we have the greater good. We have biblical examples of that as well. Rahab lies to protect the Jewish spies, and she's blessed for it. Uh, the Hebrew midwives deceive the Egyptians so that they can save the baby. You see, it was a greater good. I, I like to say it this way sometimes. I, I think there are some people who are going to use the truth for criminal purposes. If you're going to use the truth for mass murder, for something that's overtly, extremely e evil, they don't deserve the truth. So we need to be very careful. Now, thankfully, now listen to this real well because I don't want you to take this and run with it to, where, to places where it was never intended to go. Thankfully, most of us will never find ourselves in a position where we have Jewish people hidden in the basement and the Nazis come in and ask us where they are. But if you do, you don't have to tell them where they're hiding. If, for example, someone busts into your house and you know they're coming and you've got your wife and your children hiding in the attic and the bad guy comes in and says, there's anybody else here, I'm going to kill you all, and you say, no, there's nobody else here, you don't have to be concerned with your last breath as you're cut down by the hail of bullets being taken as walk, walking out of fellowship of God. There is a greater good, and I think the Bible gives examples of that. So there are rare, rare exceptions to the rule of honesty. Now, on a more pedestrian level, this may be something that I think we may face. I know that we face this more pedestrian model from time to time. There may also be times when, for the sake of love, or the sake of civility, one that we have to, for the sake of love or civility, perhaps not give the whole truth. For, for example, when someone has, as in great hospitality in their culture perhaps, offered you a meal. That's happened to me before. In Kazakhstan, in August of 2000, the year 2000, I was offered a sheep's head for, and I was the guest of honor, and offers the sheep's head at a meal. It meant a lot to them. I was not about to tell them that I was doing everything I could not to uh, throw up. And that's, that's the truth. I mean, because my mom allowed me to be a picky eater. And I'm, you know, but I take full responsibility for it. And sheep's head was never on the menu. And, and we struggled through it. And I, we were able to get, you know, I was able to pass it around, have everybody share with me. I won't tell you all the details because you probably have a weak stomach as well if I was to tell you all the details of how everybody ate that sheep's head. When the meal was finished, she looked at me and said, did you enjoy that? I said, oh, yeah. I appreciate so much your hospitality. Do you think I was going to tell her, no, I about threw up the whole time. I never want to do this again. That would not have been an act of love. You, you see the point. From time to time over the course of my life, I've, I've been blessed with the opportunity to go to homes where um, a lot of say, mentally handicapped, mentally, mentally challenged people reside. Because of my sister, we've had opportunity to do that because of some ministry that we've done in the past. The kids and I and some other you know, groups, we would go around to these homes. And inevitably, people would come up that were not necessarily that physically attractive. And you know what I mean. But boy, they have beautiful souls. And they, they would come up and they'd want you to look at their shirt. You know, and, and it may have stains on it and mustard and ketchup, but they're so proud of their new shirt. And they'll say, see, you know, see, what do you think of my shirt? Man, that's a handsome shirt. It really, it, boy, it just really makes you look great. It's not really the total truth. 
Are you going to tell them, no, you, you just, you know, I don't even want to say those words because they would be so cruel, even in illustration. I know some people think you should. I've been around people that think you just got to tell the truth to everybody. There are times when it's the greater good not to. Again, these are not, no, not everybody's going to have the Corey Tim Boom situation. And there are not that many times we have the other one. But, but uh, now the classic example, if, if your wife asks you, uh, do I look fat in this dress? Um, I would advise you. Jerry Seinfeld has a better one. He says, uh, this is a question you just cannot answer. Uh, when your wife comes and asks you, do you think my girlfriend is pretty? He said, you just may as well kill yourself at that particular moment because there's no good answer to that question. You, know, you, can't, you can't help it. So You see what happens when my wife's not here? They say, don't. But those types of situations are not what is in view in verse 25. What is in view is in verse 25 is the norm. The norm of Christian interaction. We should tell the truth to one another. There shouldn't be deception. There shouldn't be intrigue. There shouldn't be conspiracy. In the body of Christ, we should, we should be truthful with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, first thing, we need to lay aside falsehood and tell the truth. Second, the second thing, we've got to put away anger. This is one where we have the, uh, more of a, kind of a positive than negative, but be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So the second exhortation is to avoid sinning when angry and to deal with it as quickly as we can if the anger bleeds over into over sin. Now, I try to word that try to word that very carefully because, watch, anger. Now, maybe not this guy, but anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. Our Lord was ang angry on several occasions. Um, if we are to imitate Christ, then when we see something that's unjust or that's overtly sinful or that's massively evil. That, that should inspire in us the emotion of anger, just so long as it's directed in the right place and that it doesn't take over and what is commonly called righteous indignation then bleeds over into overt sinning. That's why I've joked on previous occasions, we probably ought not try that at home because for most of us, we end up like this. We start off, I'll at least say I have, you know, I've started off on more than maybe... 150 times in my life, where something was, was legitimately wrong, and I was legitimately upset about the wrong, and then, you know, maybe went one or two steps too far with, with being upset. So I started off with something that was the right thing to do. See a situation that's totally unfair, that's totally wrong, where somebody's perhaps being abused, and then instead of handling it in a righteous way, then you allow it to go too far. And Paul knows that that happens to a lot of us. That's why he says, be angry, and yet do not sin. Actually, he's quoting Psalm, uh, the fourth chapter of Psalm, verse 4, when he says this. But the key idea is, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you can stay angry all day long, and then right about 6 o'clock in the evening, you say, well, I'm going to go ahead and confess that. No, no, this is idiomatic, meaning that don't let it get the best of you. 
if you, if you start seeing it going too far, then pull back, confess that sin, and God, ask God to help you to handle it in a righteous way. So anger in, itself, in and of itself is not sinful, proven by the fact that our Lord became angry. He was angry when he saw what was happening in the temple. He was angry when we, he saw people in Israel uh, that were supposed to be shepherding the people of God, that were fleecing the people of God. But it was always the proper response. Our Lord's response was always the proper response. When, we, when anger gets the best of us, we should confess it and deal with it very, very quickly. Now, the reason that we need to refrain from unrighteous anger is that when we are in a state of anger that has gone beyond just being upset with the unrighteousness of a situation, our reactions are rarely positive. Rarely are they positive. And Satan can and does pounce upon this opportunity, and that's when something relatively small can turn into something fairly large. So we have the command, positive, negative, and then also the reason why, because we don't want to give the devil an opportunity to do damage to us in a spiritual way. So second exhortation is to... Be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 28, the third exhortation is an exhortation to refrain from stealing. But on the other hand, to work hard, the Greek term kopiao, to work hard so that we'll have something to share with the needy. Kopiao doesn't just mean to get a job. When the text says, let him who steals, which indicates that there were people in the Ephesian church that this was their manner of life. Or perhaps that was their manner of life. As an unbeliever, Paul is exhorting them not to have this continue to be their manner of life. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Now, this is hard labor. This is, this is hard work. This doesn't just mean get the easiest job that you can get in coast. This means work really hard. So don't steal. That's the negative, the positive, but work hard. Now, what's the reason behind that, performing with his own hands what is good? In order that, the reason, he may have something to share with him who has need. Now, this is an undertaught truth in Christianity. Very much undertaught truth in Christianity. That, that's the idea of Christian charity. The Christian giving one to another. We, we understand the idea of stewardship. I think most of us do. We under, under, understand the idea of stewardship when it comes to giving to a ministry or Giving, certainly giving to one's local church, which I believe should be the, the priority, and then other parachurch ministries coming in after that. But sometimes we've missed the idea that charitable giving, one believer to another, is also spiritual giving. And the harder you work, rather than stealing something, working hard, work as hard as the Lord will allow you with the opportunities that are placed in front of you, so that you won't just have enough food to feed yourself, but that if somebody else in your periphery has a need, so that you'll have some extra to give to them. Now, that says something about stewardship, too. It says that I, I don't need to be spending 100% of what I have on myself. I need to be setting some aside in case there are needs that I see come up with my loved ones or my friends or people in my church or, or even my neighbor. That's part of, certainly part of, stewardship. This reaffirms, by the way, the teaching of the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the commandment against stealing. The Greek term for stealing, by the way, is klepto. Hear an English word there? Yeah, I thought you might. 
klepto, kleptomaniac, it covers all forms of misappropriation. This one makes it a little bit harder. This covers all forms of misappropriation. Yes, the bank robber is covered by this. The, the pickpocket, the shoplifter, the guy who goes and steals his neighbor's lawnmower, or maybe the guy who files a false tax return. You know, so it's any form of misappropriation. Anything where instead of working hard, we take something that doesn't belong to us, either uh, actively or passively. We're taking something that doesn't belong to us. So we should steal. We should refrain from stealing. On the other hand, perform good works or work hard with our hands or with whatever it is that the Lord has allowed us, um, has blessed us with whatever opportunities, the purpose so that we might have some, something to give those who are in need. Now, verse 29, the fourth exhortation. This is an interesting one. Is to refrain from using words, the words that we speak, to tear down others. On the other hand, we should use the words that we speak to build others up. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Actually, that's part of the, uh, the reasoning behind why we should not let any unwholesome word pass from their mouth. Now, I want you to listen really, really carefully. I know you've been doing that all night, but, it's, but especially here, because this passage, this particular verse, has sometimes been misappropriated by well-meaning Christians who condemn others for the use of what I'm going to call tonight uh, profanity or curse words, if you will. Surely there are times when certain offensive words that we would call curse words can be used to tear down others and are therefore sinful. But to limit this passage, as some have, I mean, a lot of moms have done this with their kids. They'll pull this out. So how are you talking that way? You're talking just like your daddy or daddy saying talking just like your mama. I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap if you say that word again. You know, George Carlin used to have a thing in the late 70s, the seven words you couldn't say on television. Now, you know which words I'm talking about now. But to limit it to that, surely those words can be included in it if they're used in a way to tear someone down. But to limit it to that is mis a misunderstanding of the passage. It's really shortchanging this passage terribly. The word unwholesome means rotten. And in, in the context of this verse, we see what this means by taking the opposite of it at the end of the verse. Unwholesome words are those words that rather than build people up, tear people down. That rather than give people grace that are destructive to people. That's what we need to watch out for. Listen, I have heard people rip other people to shreds, rip them to shreds, and never once use one of those words that George Carlin used to talk about you can't say on TV. So it's much more than just the simple don't say this or that or the other thing. You're not going to, I'm not going to get fooled into saying these words. But that's, yes, those could be included, but that's not all there is. I'm, I'm serious about this. Sometimes people think that they're just flying just fine with regard to this passage, 
and they're some of the worst abusers of this passage because they'll use every word that comes out of their mouth to tear someone else down. But they never, may never use a curse word, but that's what they use their mouth for. Now, I am not in any way, I think I, unfortunately I have to say this for, for the tape, but I'm not in any way encouraging or endorsing the use of curse words or offensive language. But I am simply reporting that to restrict the meaning of this passage, this idea of unwholesome words, to those words, that's wrong. People can and often do violate the spirit of this passage without ever uttering what we would consider a curse word. So we need to be very, very careful with this. Now, the reasoning actually is tied in with verse 30. The and there brings us back to verse 29. So this very, very famous phrase that we'll spend some time on in a future lesson and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What happens when we use our mouths to tear people down, when rotten words come out of our mouths, and, and we tear people down with those words, that is something that grieves God's Holy Spirit. And there's a lot we need to do on that that we won't have time for tonight. Again, we'll do it at a future lesson. I hope you'll come for that because it'll be real important. And if, in case you don't make it, this is a specific sin that is mentioned that grieves the Holy Spirit in principle all sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But this one is so egregious that it is mentioned by the Apostle Paul that when we use words, in this in context, particularly within the body life, in, within the church, when we use our words one person to another and tear people down with it, it grieves God's Holy Spirit. Some people do it like it's sport. It, it, we've done it for so long, it just seems fun to do that. But it is something that grieves God's Holy Spirit and we really don't want any part of it. So, yes, it includes the curse words, but there's more to it than just that. Then finally, in verse 31, the fifth uh, exhortation is to get rid of five vices and to adopt three virtues. Now, the five vices, I know there are six, things, six words mentioned, but two of them go together. They're, they're practically synonymous. The five vices are these, bitterness, Anger and wrath, now that, that's one of the vices together. Clamor, which means yelling or screaming, kind of losing it that way. Slander and malice, which is a motivation for all evil. Those are the five vices that we're to, to put away, just like we're taking off the old garment. Bitterness is something that, that when left unchecked, will destroy the individual's life. You, you will never live a fulfilled life if you don't get the bitterness out of your soul. Actually, some in, in medical research have seen that bitterness leads, just from a physical standpoint, bitterness, long-term, long-standing, intense bitterness can lead to all kinds of degenerative diseases, even within your body. It has a negative effect just on your body. But it also has an, a greater negative effect on your soul as well. Bitterness has to be done, be put away with. Anger and wrath. These, these actually are two, two words that are so close to being the same, so close to being synonymous that most who look at this passage put these together as one individual vice that needs to be done away with. Now, it's interesting. A minute ago, he said, be angry and yet do not sin. Here he says, put away anger. There, and when we studied this before or just a few moments ago, early in verse 26, we said there are times when one can have righteous anger. When he gets down here to verse 31, he's not talking about righteous anger anymore. He's talking about sinful anger. 
anger that is not appropriate under the particular circumstance. Clamor or yelling. Actually, that's one of my favorite. Yelling or maybe screaming. I would just put this another way in a common term. This is losing it. You know, sometimes you just build up all day long, you know, and, and you just you just you can't take it anymore, and then boom, everything that's inside your soul comes out, and you wish it didn't, but it just, blow, you're, they're, they're like an oil well blowing its cork. You just blow your cork, and that is rarely a healthy thing, and Paul says to put it away. Slander. This is one that is one of the more respectable sins in Christianity. Heaven forbid if you are to uh, fornicate or, or uh, steal something. But slander, you know, that's just not that bad, is it? You know? Yeah, it is. You remember, in the body, in the body, we need to be very, very careful in how we interact with one another. And slander needs to be put away. Now, we, we need to be careful. If someone asks you a specific question, you know, what happened to Billy Bob? And you say, well, unfortunately, Billy Bob was convicted, and now he's in prison up in Huntsville. That's not slander. That's just factual information. Now, you can make it slander by having a whole bunch of juicy details the person didn't necessarily need to know. But it doesn't mean you can't ever have a conversation with someone. But again, like using the unwholesome words to tear someone down, Paul's coming back to that idea now. We've got to use our words to build people up, not to tear someone down. In verse 29, the words were probably spoken one to another. In verse 31, when it speaks of slander, this is something I'm telling you about her. So I'm tearing her down with my words. She might not even know it. And that's really so unfair. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that that is not something that marks our local congregation. Because that is just, it just really makes it putrid when it does. I've been in groups that where it does mark it, and it's just, you just don't want to be any part of that. So let all bitterness... Wrath and anger, clamor, slang, slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Here the term malice is being used in a sense, almost an inclusive sense, of everything that is a motivating factor to doing the things that are mentioned in the first four. You know, just malice is an attitude uh, of, um, of intentional wrongdoing. Now there's three virtues, though. The three virtues, and you can... We would know they were virtues if, even if I didn't tell you these are the three virtues. No, they just sound different. You know, they're just these are lovely, as opposed to bitterness, anger, and wrath, clamor, slander, and malice. As opposed to that, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ has forgiven you. So here we also have a negative command: put away these things. A positive command: be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. And then the reason. The reason kind of sums it all up, really, but especially the forgiving one another because God in Christ also has forgiven you. I don't know about you, but that last phrase really kind of closes the book on it for me. I can, I can try to argue about it. I can try to rationalize things and why I shouldn't forgive that person or, or um, why I should be able to retain bitterness about a past situation. But then when I realize all that God has forgiven me, and when I'm honest about it, then I have to realize at the same time that I need to set aside what someone has done to me. He's forgiven me. I need to set it aside. There's a big difference between kindness and, for example, bitterness, anger, and wrath, or clamor. It's really difficult to say one is acting kindly 
when one loses it and screams at someone with their mouth. That's not kindness. That's not tender either. Now, these are, sometimes we get the wrong idea in, in Christianity that, that if we were to do these things, if we were kind and if we were tender and if we forgave one another, that somehow that makes us weak. But if that's weakness, that's what I want. In fact, Paul had something similar to say about this. He said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So while this may make you appear weak to the world, you're actually much stronger when you're exercising kindness. You're much stronger when you're exercising tenderness. And you're much stronger when you exercise forgiveness. Again, the, the idea to put away anger is not a contradiction to what he said before. This is a different aspect of anger. So we're going to also spend some time in verse 32, particularly with the idea of forgiveness and forgiving one another. Because in my view, the failure to forgive, particularly another believer when they've wronged you, but the failure to forgive is probably in the top two or three in terms of stumbling blocks for Christians with regard to their spiritual life. It is a really bad thing. And you can be, you can be going along thinking you're doing everything right. I'm going to... Church on Sunday, Sunday night, I, I go to a couple prayer meetings a week, I go to Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting, I participate in everything that I possibly can. Things just don't seem to be going right for me. What's wrong with me? Well, it could be a multitude of things, but one of the things we need to check is, am I harboring some resentment, some bitterness in my soul for, uh, because I have failed to forgive someone that I should be forgiving? So, as we've surveyed these verses tonight, We've observed that there is a prescribed behavior that's appropriate to one who is a member of the body of Christ. Positionally, each one of us has taken off the old man and put on the new man. Positionally, we have. But now that we're positionally a new spiritual being, we have the responsibility experientially to act like it. 